Well, I put on the front of my notes, I, I have a cover page, not because like my English professor is checking or anything, but I don't know why I do that. Uh, I did it when I did my candidate sermon here. It's the first time I'd ever done that, and you voted me in, so I thought I probably should keep doing it. So, uh, but my cover page says Easter 2021. Obviously, uh, we celebrated Easter last week. Uh, it was Resurrection Sunday, but I kind of view this as a part three in a series. It's not really a series, but you know, two weeks ago was Palm Sunday, and we talked about preparing your heart for the celebration. We were in 21 days of prayer. We opened the sanctuary up in the morning uh, leading up to that time, and the charge was to prepare your heart for what God's going to do. And we had a great Easter celebration. And I want to thank those who made that possible. So many of you were involved in that. It was, it was a great, great day. So we had this time. Yeah, go ahead. So we had this time of preparing our hearts. We had this celebration, and then there's almost this like, Ooh, like let down, like it's all over. Kind of like Christmas when you're anticipating the presents and you open the presents and it's, then it's all over. Well, today, um, I don't believe it's all over because there, there's got to be a response to what do we do after Easter? What do we do in response to the resurrection? Particularly, what do the disciples do? When Jesus comes back and re- shows himself to them. He reveals himself, but then he leaves Let's go back to last week's text as as kind of the the foundation for this message. Let me read to you Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 40. This is Jesus revealing himself to his disciples. The women had seen him, but the the guys thought it was was nonsense. There was a resurrected Christ. They weren't expecting it. Uh, But then he shows up, walks into the room. Yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. This is Jesus' words. It was also written that the message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beyond, be, uh, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. And here's the key verse that kind of led us as we closed that passage out last week. You are witnesses of all these things. You remember we talked about how, if, if you were here on Sunday, you, were, you may remember You should remember because it was a big part of the message, (laughs) but there's no quiz. We talked about how it was eyewitness testimony that is the foundation of our faith. It's the eyewitness testimony that that, that laid the foundation for the church to explode in the book of Acts because the Bible did not exist as we know it today. As a matter of fact, if you look at how it exploded in the book of Acts, you have a handful of witnesses in chapter 1. Then you in chapter 2, you have 3,000 witnesses. By chapter 4, you have 5,000 witnesses, and it continued to grow exponentially based on eyewitness accounts, not the Bible as we know it. They had the Old Testament, they had some letters that were being written, but they weren't even written yet at this point. And today there's millions of churches, hundreds of thousands of churches, millions of people who consider uh, themselves Christians who call on Jesus for salvation because of these eyewitness testimonies, and and that that has gone on and on and on. And, And let me say, we did address really briefly, and I don't want to redo that whole thing, but we talked about the idea that maybe the disciples took his body and, and hid it and like devised the scheme to trick the whole world for 2,000 years, that they're going to overpower these untrained, unarmed, uneducated guys, hatch a plan, overpower the Roman guards, take the body, and then keep this going for so long that they're willing to die for it. Eleven disciples left after Judas uh, abandons Jesus, but out of the, of the 11 remaining disciples, 10 of them die as martyrs. People don't die for a lie. 
These men knew what they saw and they were willing to die for it. But here's an interesting change that I think takes place between what we read last week and what we read throughout the book of Acts. While being an eyewitness to a resurrection is a pretty good reason to be confident in what you believe, even willing to die for your belief, it doesn't necessarily change your character, your, your confidence, or your competence in being a witness. Yes, uh, they believed. How could they not believe after seeing a resurrected Christ? But to be witnesses is another thing. Do you remember the context of when Jesus revealed himself last week in Luke chapter 24? Jesus was crucified, and they went to the upper room to hide. The religious uh, community, the government, they wanted to get rid of Jesus. And we see this same atmosphere and attitude even after they meet the resurrected Christ in the book of Acts, that they want to suppress this message of a resurrection and a resurrected Christ. The disciples were hiding, and they were afraid, and they're in the upper room, and Jesus appears to them. And when he appears to them, there's a confidence in, in him, but not necessarily their ability to do what he says they should do. You are to be my witnesses. I think most of us can relate with these disciples. Some of us, just like the disciples, may have been skeptical, maybe thought it was nonsense, like the disciples did in our text last week, until we encountered Christ. Obviously, none of us here were eyewitnesses to his resurrection, but we encountered him. God made himself known to us. His spirit drew us when he said, come to me, and the spirit continues to speak to us when, when we hear the voice of Jesus saying, abide in me. The good news of Jesus is the power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? Romans 1.16. It's the power of God to salvation. Some of us know that power. But being a believer, being confident in what I believe, doesn't necessarily make me a competent, confident witness, which is what Jesus called me to be. So I think there's two questions that actually come up here because we can look at a text like this and, and some people would think, well, does this apply to me? Jesus was talking to his disciples in the upper room. That's a very specific thing. Is this, is this prescriptive or just descriptive? This is just describing what Jesus did when he had a conversation with his disciples that they would be his witnesses. And after all, they are the apostles. That You have to be an eyewitness to be an apostle. They were the apostles who the church was built with their efforts. They were at the beginning giving leadership. So does this call to be a witness really apply to me? Because I know that I don't necessarily feel competent or confident in doing it. And if it doesn't apply to me, then I'm off the hook. Woo! So that's the first question. The second question is, if it does apply to me, and I know some of you are like already ahead of me going, I know he's going to say it applies to us. Let me get there, okay? Let me work my sermon. <laughs> if it does apply to us, then how do I go about it? In my weakness, feeling not competent or confident, especially in the world that we live in today. Like maybe when I was a kid in the 90s, I know, I was a kid in the 90s. Everyone make your comments. I was a kid in the 90s, whether you're old or young. I'm, some of you are like, wow, he's a kid. Some of you are like, oh, he's, he's old. Wherever you sit, I was a kid in the 90s, okay? And it was the best. <laughs> we had MC Hammer and baggy pants. Okay, anyways, listen. <sighs> Can't touch this. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't, I had to. Uh, listen, I, um, I could look back and say maybe it was easier. 
because I look at the world today and it looks very different than what I grew up in. And some of you who grew up in the 80s or the 70s or the 40s or whatever may think the same thing. Doesn't it feel to you like the world is becoming more and more set against what we hold dear and near to our hearts? I mean, the message of Jesus is offensive. It doesn't matter that the message of Jesus is God takes the initiative out of God's love that he shows grace, that it's not about what I do to earn it. It's not about what I have to do to perform for whatever reward exists, which is most of the religions of the world. This is God takes the initiative. God does the work. It's a beautiful message of grace and love, and yet we are criticized for being exclusive because Jesus says there's no way to the Father but by me. And I'm supposed to go out there and be a witness to this? Well, I've got good news for you. And let me stop. Let me say, if you're not a Christian here today, we're excited that you're here. Thank you for joining us for this worship service. This message obviously is geared to the Christians. I'm speaking to the Christians in the room. But I, I do recognize that perhaps that exclusivity, that, that thing has been something that's maybe had a turnoff or an obstacle for you. And I hope you just sit and listen to this message because woven through this message, this challenge to the church to respond to the resurrection is a message that, that, of, of Christ's resurrection. It's the good news of Jesus. And if you get nothing else, get that portion so you know what it is that we believe that we're, that we're challenging one another to do. The good, I got good news and bad news. The bad news is that, um, yeah, it's, it's not easy. Uh, I got to do another little caveat. I understand that sometimes Christians are offensive and we're unloving and we are judgmental and that's our fault. We could own that. But if you take the gospel message and take our personality and our grumpiness and whatever we are, that, that does a disservice to the, to, the, to the witness of Christ. If we take the gospel message as is and place it on a piece of paper with no tone or no personality, it's still offensive because it is exclusive. It was a... <laughs> And that's the good news. It was offensive in the first century. Do you realize what it was like for a first century Christian to say, hey, I got to tell you about Jesus. He died a criminal's death for you. If someone came up to you and said somebody died a criminal's death, was executed at the penitentiary down the street, are you like, yeah, I'm in. I believe that. It's pretty offensive then. They faced a world that was very much opposed. Christianity, our faith, was born into obstacles. But the good news is, first of all, that we're not the only ones of disciples that we're going to read about here. Had to be witnesses in that same type of environment. And secondly, Jesus knows your weakness. He knows these obstacles, and he provides what we need. So we're going to take a look at that today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. And as you do, let me give you a little background. The book of Acts is Really, volume two of Luke's account of, of Jesus. It's the life and work of Jesus' ministry in the gospel of Luke, and then it's the life and work of Jesus through the church age, volume two, the book of Acts. We call it the Acts of the Apostles because it recounts what they, I mean, that's the, the real name, but that recounts what, what they did at the very beginning of the church when Jesus ascends to heaven. So we close out Luke where we were in chapter 24. And then we pick it up in Acts 1. There's a little bit of overlap uh, in the Ascension account because you see it at the end of 24, and he comes back to it in Acts chapter 1. Let me read it to you, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles 
further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when they were eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, is it time for you? Uh, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore your kingdom? He replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Some of you are really smart, and you know where I'm going with this sermon. Let me still work my sermon, all right? He gives us everything we need. Let's start in verse 1. Luke, remember Luke is the author, Gospel of Luke, Volume 2, the Acts of the Apostles. He says, in my first book, obviously a reference to Luke, he's once again addressing the same audience, Theophilus. He addresses him in Luke chapter 1, verse 3. But I read this part, and it's kind of like those first three verses are just kind of a recap of what he says in the Gospel of Luke. And it reminds me of like when you're watching a TV show, and like they say, to be continued, and the next week you come back and it says, last time on Growing Pains or previously on Frasier, whatever TV show you watch, you know, and they show a little montage of clips of the previous episode. That's kind of like what I, what I vision, envision happening because I do. That's why my, my brain works. Maybe I watched too much TV as a child. Um, that's, how, that's what I'm thinking when I'm reading this, like previously in the book of Luke. Uh, so he gives a little, he leaves a little, a little taste of what, where they were, just reminds Theophilus of where they've been. And he says that there was 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. This is the only place in the New Testament where that's actually identified as, as a time and the reference to that time. He says that he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. Last week we saw that these were eyewitnesses, the ones who were willing to die because they, they knew what they saw. But then we see in verses 4 through 5, he reminds them of what he told them, and this is a reference to John 24. Oh, I don't know if you remember this last week because I felt uncomfortable doing it, but I read the passage in John 24 right up to the, and you will be my witnesses, and I, kinda, and I read the rest of it. I kind of snuck it in there because that's today's message. Turn with me to John 24, and I actually want you to turn because I want you to see something. Not John 24, Luke 24. Once again, John Luke 24, starting in verse 49. And now, so listen, verse 48 says, you are witnesses of all these things. That's where we landed last week. That's the message last week. And then verse 49. Like the answer to the question is here, but we see it expanded in, in what our text today. And now I will send you the Holy Spirit, just as my father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. The apostles are to be filled with power from heaven. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit that, that, that Jesus says, I am sending to you, and then he ascends. And then we have volume two, the book of Acts chapter one. And we just read it. Verses four through five, he says that he's going to baptize them with the Holy Spirit. Definitely a, a reference to, you remember John the Baptist saying, hey, I baptize with water, but he's gonna baptize you with the Spirit. You remember that? And Jesus is kind of alluding to, to, to that uh, or John saw it from where he stood. Verses six through seven, the apostles, 
kept asking him, Lord, is it time for you to, to free Israel? But what's interesting about this text is they say, they kept asking him. Now, we, we, we're, according to Luke here, it was a 40 day period, and during those times, I think the, the, the disciples revealed their hand of what they thought should be happening. Like, what's next? Everyone wants to know what's next. You, you died, you rose again, what's next, Jesus? But in their asking, they are tipping their hand to what they think should be next. They think it's time to free Israel from the Roman rule. It's, it's time for this political thing. And they kept asking and kept asking. And I know he doesn't say it there, but he did say they keep asking. And it just reminds me of like your children in the backseat of a car saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? No one, no one's children did that, just mine. Okay, uh, that's what I hear when I read that. Now, Jesus' answer here is interesting because he gives them an answer that pretty much says, God's timing, the Father's timing, it's not your business. Which is interesting because it's something that uh, Christian disciples, followers of Jesus, the church has kind of ignored that fact that he said that. We like to figure this stuff out and people try to guess. Um, that's not the sermon, that's just a side note. But then verse 8, after he says, the timing is not your business, but what is your business? Verse 8. But once again, he repeats what he says earlier in this text. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Greek word for witness here, as well as in Luke chapter 24, is martyros. Does that sound familiar to you? Sounds like the word martyr. And you'll be my martyrs. And they end up being his martyrs, but that's really not the origin of the word. The word really means to be witnessed, and that's why we have the word witness. It comes from the Greek court system. It means, to bear, it means to bear witness, to give evidence, to testify. It comes from the Greek court system, their culture. We use it here, and the word became associated with dying for a cause. It became associated with dying for something you believe in because the Christians who were witnesses and bearing witness and testifying of Jesus did die, those early fathers, there was a church father who said, like, the, the, the blood of the martyrs is, like, you know, seeded the church. When the word martyr gets, gets a new definition in our, you know, vernacular, it's because for something like that, that's pretty significant. So martyros doesn't necessarily require death. It requires someone to bear witness, to give evidence, and to testify and when you bear witness and give evidence and testify on behalf of the Lord with such passion and conviction, with such power, your, mar your martyros may make you into a, what we understand as a martyr. Interesting that Jesus says that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Some, some people think, oh, look, John's giving a... Not John. Golly. We're going to go back to John next week, starting back in John. Praise the Lord. Okay. And then when I say John next week, I'm going to mean John. Jesus. I confuse John and Jesus. That's bad. That's a bad deal. Jesus says, you'd be my witnesses. But there's a lot of people who think that perhaps what we have here is a, a table of contents, because really it ends up being a table of contents for the book of Acts. The gospel was pro proclaimed by his disciples in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then the ends of the earth. But what you have really is concentric circles saying, 
Jesus is saying, you're going to be my witnesses here, you're going to be my witnesses there, and you're going to be my witnesses everywhere. And that's how the book of Acts actually unfolds because geography works that way. And they didn't have an airplane to just skip to everywhere. They had to move from where they were. So this brings us to the first question we asked. Does this apply to us? Or is this just limited to the disciples, to these apostles? We know that God, we know that the good news of Jesus spread quickly through the apostles in the first generation, but what about that second generation of Christians? The believers in the book of Acts um, show us that they too took on this call. Although they weren't there in the upper room with Jesus, there, there is a, the first Christian martyr, his name was Stephen, it happens in Acts chapter 7, and in Acts chapter 8, what you read about is that persecution broke out, and the apostle Paul, at this point, is just Saul, the persecutor of the church. He stands by and watches Stephen's execution, but at the very beginning of chapter 8, it says persecution broke out, and everyone scattered, except for, except for the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem. Chapter 8, verse 4 says, But the believers who were scattered, remember, not the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem, preached the good news about Jesus wherever they were. So these believers knew the call was not just to the, the, the disciples who became apostles, but it was for them as well. Paul gives an, the example and the instruction. Paul wasn't there. At the very in, in the upper room when Jesus appeared to his disciples. Remember, he was going to persecute the Christians, but obviously he has a major role in spreading the gospel. And then he has in his letters instructions to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 through 20, he says this: And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us, and that's the us, not just us, me and my companions, the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation so that we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Paul is telling the Corinthian church that they too are ambassadors for Christ, called to share the good news. Then Paul wrote to his protégés, Timothy and Titus, and I'll just refer to Timothy here. Second Timothy chapter 2 he writes, you have been, you've heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Once again, that idea of these eyewitnesses. You've heard me teach these things. It's been confirmed by others. I'm teaching you. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. He's saying, we continue to, to share the gospel and hand it down generation after generation of believers. When Paul talks about the body of Christ, he's not talking about the apostles or he's not talking about just the leaders of the church. He's talking about the whole body. And he tells pastors specifically, or he speaks of pastors specifically in Ephesians chapter 4, saying that their task is not to be the sole presenters of the gospel, the sole witnesses. Their task is to what? Equip the saints, equip the church, God's people, to do the work of the ministry. So yeah, Martyros, the call to be a witness is a call for all of us. Every Christian is a representative of Christ to those who are around them, no matter how big or how wide your circle of influence may be. Some, I understand there's different seasons in life. There are people who are um, in care facilities who have not much of a circle other than through social media, and that's where your martyros comes in. That's where you're a witness. 
Do you know that the, the, Christian, the term Christian is a pejorative term, right? It means little Christ. And it was, a, it, was, it was in Antioch where they first got the name because people were making fun of them for being little Christ. Look at these little Christs. And they're Christians. Bearing witness to Christ, giving evidence of his saving love towards mankind and testifying on his behalf before the world. Unashamed of the consequences, whatever they may be, was a radical devotion to Christ. Which brings us back to the second question. Well, how do I do this? In my weakness, in my, my feeling of being insufficient or ineffective, or my, I don't have confidence to be able to do this. I don't think I have the competency to be able to do this. That brings us to our, back to our text, chapter 8 of Acts, or chapter 1 of Acts, verse 8. How do we do this in a hostile world? How do we do this? What did we read? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And now I'm sending the Holy Spirit just as my father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit fills you with power from heaven. You see, I think of the celebration that we had last week, and it was such a beautiful celebration of a resurrected Christ. But the resurrection is not just an event to celebrate. It's a message to be shared through the power of the Spirit. The resurrection is not just an event to celebrate, it's a message to be shared through the power of the Spirit. During Jesus' ministry, you know, there is no reference to the Holy Spirit being on anybody except for Jesus himself. But the Spirit descends upon him in his baptism. This is all in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 3, verse 22. The Spirit fills him when he returns from the Jordan. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit led him into the wilderness and it led him out of the wilderness. Also chapter 4. And the Spirit rests upon him when he stood up in Nazareth and preached a sermon and quotes Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now the same Spirit who rested on Jesus in his ministry would empower the apostles to be witnesses and it empowers us. Jesus would continue to instruct his apostles through the presence of the Holy Spirit. See, in the Gospels, the apostles and subsequently Jesus' followers until today, because, you know, we are the continuation of the book of Acts. The book of Acts doesn't say, the end. It just kind of keeps going. But his apostles, they experienced the Spirit through Jesus' presence with them, and now, after the ascension, they experience Jesus through the presence of the Spirit. The apostles were empowered to witness were empowered to be witnesses to the resurrection. They didn't go to seminary. They were not trained to preach or start churches. They were empowered by the Spirit. So those of us who feel insufficient and not confident or competent, the Spirit is there to empower you, to bring power to represent him to be martyros. We've not seen the Lord physically, as, um, but as Christians, we have encountered the resurrected Christ or we would, we would not be here. It's his spirit who said, come to me. And it's his spirit who says, abide in me. And we walk with the resurrected Christ through our relationship with the spirit. 
the resurrection is not an event, to, not just an event to celebrate. It's a message to be shared through the power of the Spirit. So what do we do? Let me give you a couple uh, takeaways here. First of all, be filled with the Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5.18 to the church in Ephesus, be filled with the Spirit. Not because um, they didn't have the Spirit. They had the Spirit. They were, they were, the moment you become a Christian, the Spirit takes residence in you. It's part of the spiritual re- re- resurrection. It's the, it's the regeneration that takes place in your life. We are, re- we are justified, we are um, reconciled, and we are regenerated, made into a new creation. Your real life is hidden in Christ. You are a new creation. You're living that new life, that radiant life. I'm sorry, I had to do that. While the degree in which he dwells in us does not change, he is present, all there present. You have all the spirit when you become a Christian. What can vary is the degree by which we recognize his presence and, or respond to his presence in our life. So when Paul says in Ephesians 5, be filled with the spirit, he's speaking to people who had the spirit, all the spirit. He's just saying, recognize and respond and live full of the Spirit, with the Spirit's guidance and control. The grammar that when he says be continually filled is, the, is this is nerdy Greek stuff, present tense imperative. But essentially he's saying you should be continually being filled with the Spirit. Paul wants their lives to be such that the Spirit is making his presence known by how they live, guided and directed by the Spirit, whether they speak and act, that their life is witness to Christ. When we do so, we, we, we feel what God feels, we desire what God desires, we do what God wants, we speak by God's power, we pray and serve in God's strength, we have a knowing with the knowledge that God himself gives. As Christians, it's important that we share this message of the resurrection that we gathered together last week and had this great celebration, not just for our own sake to say, oh, so beautiful, thank God for my salvation, but that we can declare that message. Second thing I would say is we need to corporately stay to fight on mission. And I've spoken about this before, but just as a reminder, we radiant Christian life, we exist to be on mission together to proclaim the good news of Jesus. The problem really isn't getting on mission. Lots of churches can get on mission. The problem is staying on mission to keep our focus. So how do we stay on mission? Because church can become about other things really quickly than the kingdom advancing. We need to reframe over and over again reminders over and over again that we are on mission. That mission is not what we do, but it's really why we exist. The last time I, I referenced this idea, I, I shared a quote, and I'd like to share it again because somebody asked for that quote, and uh, I probably never gave it to you, so now's your chance. Get ready to write this down. One scholar said this, it's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world is that God has a church for his mission in the world. 
Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. If it's just an activity, then we could pick it up and lay it down as we please. If it's our reason for being, then everything we do either furthers our mission or detracts from it. May we be a church on mission together. The third thing I would say, and I'm just going to add this because I mentioned it up front before the message about being a praying church. I, um, you may not recall this. A lot's happened since January of 2020. We did a series called C3 talking about divine urgencies that I was sensing. You know, we we just done Vision 2020. We were, we, were, we knew that they were going to make some, you know, facelift improvements or whatever, some address some things that needed to be addressed. But I said, it's not about the building. It's about tools to be on mission together. And one of the urgency things I said is, let's, let's raise the bar of prayer at Radiant. And a few months later, we were all at home, unable to do that. But as I reflect on that sermon, I think to just this past month, as we prepared for Easter, the 21 days of prayer, the, the, the additional regular prayer meeting. We have a Thursday night prayer meeting, which is this Thursday night. No, it's not this Thursday night, but it's Thursday night, the third Thursday night of the month, and the first Saturday of the month, we have a, we have a prayer meeting that takes place where we pray for your sick cat, we pray for your Aunt Betsy, but we pray that God would use us to be a lighthouse in this community. We pray on mission. See, I want you to pray about your jobs. I want you to pray about your family. I want you to pray about your health, but I would encourage you, pray on mission. Set some time aside to say, God, would you use us? Use me. I understand that God makes some people intercessors and those people will pray all the time. And that's not everybody. But if you pray some of the time, use some of that time to pray on mission. Throughout scripture, we see God responding when his people pray and cry out for him to move. I'll close this story, I'll close this message with a story. Uh, I can make the story really long, but I'll try not to. Heather, Holly and I left service last week, hopped in her vehicle and drove to Chicago. Actually, we drove to just south of Lafayette and her car started making noises. So we drove back and grabbed my truck and drove to Chicago to grab our flight, really cheap flight from Chicago to New York. And um, we missed our flight. We roll into our hotel around 12.30 or midnight. And I remind you, this is Easter. This is the evening of Easter. I woke up early on Easter Sunday morning for, you know, I'm the pastor of a church. We do that thing, sunrise service. And even earlier than that, we ordered, um, we ordered sushi. Sushi delivers at 2 in the morning in New York. It's great. But I look at my phone, and I didn't interact because it was 2 in the morning, but uh, Pastor Josh sends a text. And I won't tell you all the content of his text. It was mostly like, Jerome, you're the greatest. I'm, I love you. Uh, no, just kidding. He sends a text to our church's, uh, our staff. Uh, we have a group meet chat. And he just says, man, I'm so glad that the Lord's brought me here to Radiant, and I'm excited about what he is doing. I, I copied and pasted just a little bit of what he wrote. I'm so excited to be part of what Jesus is doing in and through Radiant. I won't share my full response, but I didn't respond to the next morning because it was really late. And just moments before my wife got into an accident, I responded. Uh, I, I too am grateful that the Lord brought us and I'll save you all that stuff. But I said this at the end, I've done a lot of ministry 
in the past where I've asked God to bless what I'm doing. But this, what he's doing at Radiant right now, doesn't feel like that. I really feel like God is doing something, and I'm just fortunate enough to sit back and watch it unfold. Sure, we've all got roles to play, but this is absolutely God who has the lead. Church, I believe God is doing something here. Let's not make the mistake of thinking it's us. Let's sit back and watch him. We have roles to play. Play your role. Be full of the Spirit. Pray on mission. Stay on mission. But let's gather here not for our sake, but for the sake of our neighbors and for this community, that we would be full of his word, reminded of his grace, and agents of reconciliation, as Paul says. The resurrection is not just an event that we come to celebrate. It's a message. May we be witnesses of that message. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word to us. For in it, you revealed who you are, your character and your nature and what it means to follow after you. And today in this text, we see this call. It's, it's, there's similar wording in the Gospels. We call it the Great Commission, particularly the Matthew account. But you did not die and rise again to reveal yourself to us to keep it a secret. Our lives have been changed and transformed and you are making us into your image. May we be a people empowered by your spirit to do the thing that we weren't born to do, to do the thing that we think we can't do, to do the thing that we think we're too weak to do, that our life would bring testimony, that our words would point to you. God, I, I, I'm convinced that even now there are those who are in this, this room or online that are thinking of those conversations that they've had with others. Give us a boldness to continue in those conversations to point to your goodness. That the good news of Jesus really is so very good. In Jesus' name, amen.